Welcome to the Later in Life Planning Show with Patrick Colley, brought to you by Keystone Elder Law, right here on News Radio WHP 580. Now, here's your host, Patrick Colley. Hello, and welcome back to the Later in Life Planning Show. I am Patrick Colley with Keystone Elder Law, where we are the shield protecting the middle class from the costs of getting older. Something happened uh, in the office this last uh, week that is fairly common. I was meeting with an adult woman who was telling me about her uh, her mother and how loving her mother always was, the family vacations that mom put together just to give the kids happy memories. But the reason for the meeting was very different. Mom has dementia, and mom is lashing out at this adult daughter, accusing her of conspiring with the doctors and other people to take things away from her. She's ranting about making plans to move out of the state and move somewhere else. And this is really not uh, all that uncommon. Uh, It takes variations. So sometimes it's the spouse telling me about the person they have loved for decades who no longer recognizes him or her, who who now thinks that the uh, nurse's aide at the care facility is their girlfriend. This is a nasty, awful condition that people are going through, and I want people to have a better understanding of this. Uh, this you, this understanding of you know you're you're looking at someone you have been very close to, and they're acting in a way that is not at all in character for them. Of course, this is heart wrenching for the whole family. It was certainly was for the adult daughter I met with this week, um, and of course there are ways in that moment to at least uh, take the 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 bite out of the cost of care that comes with dementia. And that's why we were meeting at Keystone Elder Law. But I think rather than get into the legal aspects today, I really wanted to bring somebody on who can give a clearer picture of what that person is going through themselves, the changes in the brain during dementia, what it does to the whole family. And armed with that information, all of us can be a better source of support and care for people who are going through dementia. When you know more, you'll plan ahead better. You'll be able to provide better love and support for the person who is suffering from this condition. So joining me today is Dr. Rollin Wright, who is a specialist in geriatric medicine at Penn State Health and at Hershey Medical Center. Dr. Wright, I've heard her speak. She is extremely knowledgeable about dementia, not just what is happening medically with the patient, but also the effect on the entire family. Rollin Wright, thank you for joining me on the program today. Thanks. It's great to be here. So why don't we start broadly and, and like I said, give people the clearest possible picture of what dementia is, how likely it is, what's actually going on. So start with what is dementia? Um, so uh, so thanks for throwing me a pretty easy question. <laughs> um, so dementia is really uh, changing in the brain. So we think about other organ systems, other organ diseases, uh, such as lung disease or kidney disease, we think of those things as, you know, well, we're losing more kidney cells or nephrons, so our kidneys are failing. Um, we're losing more lung cells or alveoli, so our lungs are failing. And dementia is really death or loss of neurons in the brain. So it's really where the, where the brain is dying. And um, there are a bunch of different mechanisms by which that takes place, but plain and simple, in dementia, the brain is dying. And 
from what I've how, how I've heard it described is once you're on the train, there's no getting off, meaning there's no cure for it. It's it's going to speed up. It's going to get worse over time. Yeah, sadly, the four undeniable truths about dementia are that um, that it is progressive, uh, meaning it's going to keep moving forward. It's not reversible. There's no way to stop the progression. There's no way to turn back. Um, that it is um, p- permanent and that it is going to be um, ultimately a fatal diagnosis. And let's talk about how common it is, because I've mentioned this in previous episodes of the show. It's it's a reason for financial planning, which I don't do, legal planning that I do, certainly speaking to someone like you from a medical perspective. There's lots of reasons to be aware of this, but how urgent should it be for people? How common is this? Um, so incredibly common. <laughs> it's, um, it is one of the most common diseases. I would say that 50% of people over the age of 85 have some type of, um, of cognitive impairment, measurable cognitive impairment. Um, so it's, it, it's incredibly common. I, I think that there are um, tens of millions of Americans who have this disease currently. And the Alzheimer's Association says one in three people uh, will develop dementia in the later years of life. Is that pretty accurate? I'd say so. Yeah. And, you know, I know this only because I've heard you speak and, and I've, I've seen your slides, but just to put this in a different way that people might understand, this is common enough that it, it takes the lives of more people than breast cancer and other types of cancer combined. Absolutely. And it does so over a longer period of time. So people are diagnosed with dementia, usually, and again, sadly, uh, by the time they get a diagnosis, they're already well into their into the disease process. But from beginning to end, uh, dementia lasts somewhere between 12 to 15 years, depending on the type of dementia. And for some of us, that amounts to a sixth of our lives. Yeah. And that's and then, of course, you know, I can't help but look at that as what's the cost to care for that person over that period of time, whether it's cost in terms of family caregivers taking time away from their own families uh, or or hiring professionals going into a a higher level of care. Um, So it all the, the picture starts to get clearer. And before people start freaking out, as I know some do, some get terrified at the thought that maybe they're in the early stages of dementia can you can you draw a line or 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 somehow differentiate between maybe forgetfulness in the later years of life and what is truly dementia? Yeah, so we have this concept um, or contract of mind, um, you know, in in geriatrics, where we think about what's normal cognitive aging versus what's dementia or what's technically cognitive impairment, and it's normal for us to lose our keys and hunt around for them. Um, I do that good, now. <laughs> I know. I'm <laughs> thinking about this morning. Um, so so it, it's normal for us to, um, to, lose, to lose things and um, have to, to look a little bit longer before we land on them. It's normal for us to forget, especially as we, as we get a little bit older, to forget that word, like that elusive word that you're trying to land on. Um, and then later it'll come, come back to you. The difference is that with dementia, um, and again, for the most common type of dementia, that's going to be Alzheimer's disease, 
And usually the pathology or the brain change really starts in the memory center. And the memory center is pretty much the quarterback for the rest of the brain. Um, all information is coming into the memory center and the memory center is then directing the play. You know, what's going to happen and what's going to unfold next um, based on this thing that I see or this thing that I remember I have to do. Um, in dementia, the cells in the memory center, the brain cells in the memory center are dying. And so they'll never find the keys. Um, they have no memory of where they put the keys. They have no memory that they always put the keys in the dish by the front door. Um, you know, those memories are gone. Um, when the memory center is dying, you're not able to retrieve that word. And it turns out that the memory center is tied tightly to the language center in the brain the part of the brain that tells us how to express what we're thinking. And so um, in brain disease and dementia, um, those things are not coming back. Um, the, you know, it's not like you're suddenly going to be, oh yeah, the word for that or such and such's name was Tom, you know, <laughs> like it's just not going to, it's just not going to come back. So in normal cognitive aging, you can't place that person. You see the face, you know, you know the person, you can't find the name. But later on, when it's you'll less, less convenient, it. you'll be able to remember the name and yeah. you'll feel badly about it. But the, <laughs> the person with the, the, the dementia, they're just never going to have that name come back. Right. Okay. So, and, and you've mentioned it a little bit so far, the, the four common, there, as I understand it, there's four most common types. You mentioned one, Alzheimer's disease. Uh, the others are... Yeah, so there, I would say that um, the diagnosis of dementia, we consider it like an umbrella. And if you go to the Alzheimer's Association website, you'll see the umbrella of dementia um, and then the different um, families of dementias underneath there. Because even within that four types, that's four families of dementias um, under which there are even more subtypes. Well, so the most and and so we're we're going to go to a break, but I want to I want to introduce this concept. So there's four family types of dementia. So when people say you have dementia, it's not just one global thing. It really maybe the causation, maybe the treatment are going to be different things for different families. I wish it was that simple. Oh, um, okay. <laughs> my short answer is um, that it's all dementia. And it's all the brain is dying. It's just which way is it getting there? Oh, okay. Well, when we come back from a break, we're going to learn more about the families of dementia and how the brain is dying. In fact, uh, you're listening to the Later in Life Planning Show on News Radio WHP 580. Now, more of the Later in Life Planning Show here on News Radio WHP 580. So we're back on the Later in Life Planning Show. The guest today is Dr. Rollin Wright from Penn State Health at the Hershey Medical Center. And before the break, Rollin, you were talking about how really the brain is dying. Parts of the, the neurons are, are, are sloughing off like they would in some other cell death in, in an organ system in the body. So then you were getting into the types of dementia or families of dementia. And now it's just about, it's all brain death, but it's happening in different ways. Could you tell me a little more about that? Uh, sure. So um, so the, the major families are different uh, dementia classifications. I'm just going to limit it to, um, to four and then plus one. So it's going to be Alzheimer's uh, pathology. Um, and we can dive a little bit more into the weeds on that one. Um, then there's the Parkinson's plus or Parkinson's family of dementias. And in that, I think the one that everybody's heard of and, and fears the most would be Lewy body disease. 
Um, then there are there and there's frontotemporal degeneration, and that's another family of um, dementias that really affects the front part of the brain, the frontal lobes and the temporal lobes, which is where language happens. And then there's vascular dementia, which is um, which is what happens when uh, parts of the brain are not getting enough blood supply. You know, perfusion, or you know, when we're thinking of the circulation to the brain, um, really really, really critical for the brain to get enough glucose and enough oxygen. And that's, that's a delivery system. That's your circulation to the brain. And um, when something happens to either block circulation or if, um, if, the, if there is some kind of disruption, of other disruption of circulation, then the tissue beyond that, whatever that vessel is feeding, is going to die. Um, so most commonly we think about it as a stroke. Um, can, strokes can be all sorts of sizes, can take up a large territory, can take up a small territory in the brain. So that's vascular dementia when you have an ischemic or loss of blood supply cause of brain cell death that leads to cognitive changes. And then there's, um, then there's the catch-all mixed dementia. So that's sort of, it's not a family of diseases. Um, when I talk about families, there's like a similar mechanism or pathology that's taking place to cause the different subtypes in that family. But a mixed dementia is really probably what's happening later in life when people, you know, in their 80s, uh, late 80s, 90s are starting to have cognitive impairment. By that time, it's really a mixed bag, a kitchen sink. Like it's maybe they had some head trauma early in life. Maybe they were exposed to a terrible chemical Maybe they had, um, you know, a stroke. Maybe they had something else going on. So it's kind of a blend of a multiple factors, multiple risk factors for, for dementia, at, you know, when it comes to being much later in life. Um, but the certain pathologies within each family, it's really a matter of, uh, for example, with the Alzheimer's type of dementias, um, there's really kind of this protein buildup, this protein that's running amok in the brain. And that protein, we think, is primarily beta amyloid. In the Parkinson's plus dementias, it's a different protein. So in Lewy body dementia, that's a different protein called Lewy body protein. Um, then there are tau proteins. Um, and then there are other, a whole different set of proteins that build up in the frontotemporal degeneration um, dementias. So What's happening is that these proteins that the brain can normally clear just aren't being cleared. So they just get in there and they gum up the works and we, the brain just can't clean them out. And when a protein or something happens to interrupt communication between neurons, neurons die. Uh, they're really interdependent on one another to live. So if one neuron can't connect with another one because it's got this protein kind of strangulating it or gumming up the works, then the neurons die. And how important is it to to really know which one of these systems is is undergo is is happening or processes is happening? Because at the end of the day, I mean, if it's progressive, if it's un you know uncurable, does it really matter or or does it matter to you? So it depends on the stage at which somebody presents. Like if somebody is presenting to me in the middle stages of the disease where they have moderate cognitive impairment, um, there's, there's no turning back. 
So it really doesn't matter which type of dementia. But it's turning out that earlier on, like the earlier it's diagnosed, you're going to want to know, you might want to know what type it is because there are starting to be medications available on the market that can, um, that can maybe clean up some of these proteins that are building up in the brain. And that's specifically in the Alzheimer's family. So recently there was, uh, the FDA approved uh, as recently, and what I mean recently, I mean like a month ago, exactly four weeks ago, the FDA approved a new drug um, that sole purpose um, is to go after beta amyloid in the brain. So that would only apply in people who have Alzheimer's type dementia. So the type of dementia might matter early on. When talking about vascular dementia, we have a lot of things that we can do to prevent strokes, right? Um, there's a, you know, but once you have a stroke, like there's no going back. But, um, but there's a lot the, of risk factors that predispose us to having strokes that we can mitigate with certain prevention strategies. Diet, exercise, things like that. Not smoking, you know, not being sedentary. Like sedentariness is the new smoking. Like don't do that. And probably the most protective thing against dementia is going to be staying active. And by staying active, I mean moving and grooving and not sitting around all day. Like really exercise is super protective. It's more protective than anything else. I've heard that from multiple sources, and it blows my mind with all of the advances in medical technology when I hear MDs and PhDs saying, really, it's all the studies come back to the same thing. It's just if you move, if you walk, if you lift weights, you are, you are solving or at least mitigating so many different causes of uh, health decline and mortality right. in the end. And it's not just that. I mean, to get a diagnosis of dementia, you have to have measurable cognitive impairment plus impaired function, impaired ability to carry out your daily needs. And some of those daily needs are simple, like, you know, getting up out of a chair, um, going to the bathroom, you know, getting something to eat, getting dressed. When you have somebody who has functional problems, and functional and mobility problems come when you when you don't use it, you lose it. Um, but when you have the combination of functional decline and cognitive, measurable cognitive change, that's your diagnosis of dementia. Right. So the functional side is even if you are walking or lifting weights, doing some resistance training, it might head off that functional side. So even with the cognitive decline, you can still lift yourself up out of a chair. And hopefully this is, you know, when people hear this, I mean, imagine not being able to lift yourself up out of the chair and or, or you know, get dressed yourself, all the things you take for granted. I see this all the time. I'm sure you do too, where this is, this is what happens to people. And Believe me, that's a motivator for me when I don't want to lace up the shoes in the morning and, and go running or, or go to the gym. So, but, but I think that that's where, where, where it can make a huge difference. And I think if you really want to dive into the secret sauce, because it's not just moving and grooving, but I mean, there have, there's a secret sauce to kind of brain success. Um, so the physical activity is pretty important. So I say the secret sauce is these three things. It's the stay busy, which means use your brain. Do not waste your brain on reruns of friends, okay? Like, just 
just try not to to engage in sedentary passive activities. Stay busy. Use your brain. Um, use it as long as you can. And even with people who have cognitive impairment, there are ways for us to build meaningful activity into into every day so that they are using their brain. And all of us are much better off when we're using what we got. So stay busy. Stay active. That's the physical activity part. And stay connected because if if you're in isolation, um, we've the, you know the science shows, especially after COVID, with people being in isolation, that um, that brain disease is really accelerated at like breakneck speed um, with isolation and not being connected with other people. So stay yeah. busy, stay active, stay connected. Hey, well, you heard it here, the secret sauce, right on the later in life planning show. Uh, and I've talked a little bit about that in the past, some of the levels of care and what Medicaid will even pay for, including the life program, where that's appropriate, where you have somebody who is isolated and have them safely delivered somewhere where they're going to have care provided, their their medical care, but also that that spark, that secret sauce uh, that comes from interacting with other people. As we go through all of this, and if you're imagining uh, what life is looking like, you're obviously thinking, how will I make my decisions? How will I pay my bills? How will I do all of these things? Uh, I do a weekly online workshop for middle-class estate planning and asset protection and another one on how we pay for long-term care. Both of these get into incapacity planning, and I hope you'll take that opportunity to go to keystoneelderlaw.com, click on the workshops tab, and register for an upcoming online workshop. It's free. It, it sets the table for having a plan for if, if this dementia comes your way or another disabling condition comes your way. More with Dr. Rollin Wright from Penn State Health. In a moment, when we come back from a break, you are listening to the Later in Life Planning Show on News Radio WHP 580. Welcome back to the Later in Life Planning Show on News Radio WHP 580. Here's Patrick Colley. We're back on the Later in Life Planning Show. I'm Patrick Colley with Keystone Elder Law. My guest today is Dr. Rollin Wright from Penn State Health at the Hershey Medical Center. And before the break, we were talking about all kinds of changes in the brain. Uh, and and resulting uh, uh, other types of uh, w- medications that could help, I suppose. We were talking a little bit about the processes that, that uh, dementia takes. One thing that I think is so important for people to come away with, though, is an understanding that there is, uh, that parts of the brain are dying. Um, I've seen, Dr. Wright, I've seen your uh, the, the PET scans that, that you have slides of, and you can see noticeable gaps in the picture. Um, and that, as a result... Has, uh, is what gives rise to changes of behavior. And so when I hear about people being frustrated that their loved one doesn't uh, either doesn't remember who they are or asks them for the same things over and over or or tells them the same things over and over, there's there's a lesson to be learned here. And it all starts with understanding that the person is doing the best they can with a brain that now has gaps in it. For sure. Um, I think that I would just pause and and emphasize um, people with dementia are, are really doing the best they can. Um, and it's up to us to, you know, c- kind of be a little more flexible and kind of go with their flow um, instead of, in a way, being parental and saying, Mom, I told you that five minutes ago. The tone of voice, the rebuke, even though it's mild, is something that the person with dementia, they, they may have dementia, but they know how it feels to be talked down or talked to in a certain way. 
Um, and implicit in that is this expectation that they're going to behave normally, that, that oh, yeah, I do remember what we talked. I remember that we <laughs> talked about that five times already. Like, that's just not going to happen. I think we just have to teach ourselves to be a little more patient with people with dementia um, and understand that in dementia, you know, the, in most dementias, um, you know, may, may not start out this way, but uh, we'll end up that the memory center is gone and that ultimately the language center goes as well. And with it goes, goes their words. Um, and so people with dementia often have sort of patterned ways of, of, of speaking. And so they may tell the same story 50 times because those are the words they still have. <laughs> so it's almost like it's on replay. Um, but that's a moment of success for them. Those are the words they still have. So we just have to go with their flow when they're repeating a question, repeating a story. We just have to, say, you know, we just have to find different ways of being engaged and, and encouraging. Um, and, and along with understanding that, that the memory center is gone, language may be impaired, I, you know, just, just so people can prepare themselves for this and then we can talk about ways to to maintain the relationship and be engaged and, and connected. Um, I, I, I've heard you talk about, you know, there's other, other changes, maybe uh, emotional, the ability to control emotions, the ability to, to control behavior. The story I started out with on this episode maybe lashing out. And I think that that might be more common with one type of dementia than another. Uh, and and the, 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 per, the uh, process of losing memory might be different from Alzheimer's to, say, Lewy body or, or another type of dementia. But what are some of the other brain changes that, that would be noticeable and that people have to expect? Um, so uh, let's go to behaviors for just a second. So um, Anywhere from 65 to 95% of people with dementia will exhibit something that we call dementia-related behaviors over the course of the disease. And it may be for like a hot minute, like for a couple weeks they're acting a certain way and then it's over. Or it may be something that's more lasting and more indelible, like real personality changes. So behavior change in... Um, you know, some of the behaviors that we might see, for example, I think there's 12 uh, or more, but 12 that I characteristically look for. Things like delusions or hallucinations, irritability, um, motor disturbances where somebody's pacing around and around and around and they're just unstoppable. Anger, um, maybe anxiety in some cases, although I haven't come across this very often, euphoria. I would love to see a little happiness in this disease. But um, but anyway, there is behaviors are not uncommon, and um, I'll say that probably the most common behaviors or most distressing ones are um, actually anxiety, delusions, apathy turns out to be a hugely distressing one for the loved ones because the lights are out, like the spark is gone, and they don't seem to care anymore. Um, that's a hard one. Um, but behaviors like irritability, anxiety, fear, anger, those are all responses, emotional responses that um, are triggered um, when there is a sense of imminent threat. And when the rest of the brain is dying, the very the simple brain or primitive brain is that part of your brain that is wired to have you survive. And when you feel a threat, like when you see a when you see a bear, what are you going to do? Are you going to freeze? 
and hope it doesn't notice you? Are you going to run? Are you going to hide? Are you going to fight? So it's that fight, fright, flight mode. And when, and it, it may seem innocuous, but um, little things can trigger any one of those responses because little things suddenly take on a big threat kind of thing to a person with dementia. So um, it may be something they see out of the corner of their eye. It may be how you spoke to them. Um, there's a variety of things that can trigger that fight, fright, flight response. You know, and I think going with that then, understanding that that's how you're being perceived, I've heard you talk about um, the way you approach somebody with dementia. And there's a, there's a you know, walk only so close. There's even a, you know, hand under hand. I didn't <laughs> I fully understand why this connects with the way that the person with dementia is perceiving the world. But um, but I have seen it even in at Keystone Elder Law, we have a registered nurse on staff. And I before I understood why she was doing it, I saw that with some of our clients, if they're in a wheelchair or in a chair, they're sitting down, she will literally get on one knee and speak to them so that she's not literally looking straight down at the person. And, you know, you can sort of read into what, what that power dynamic or whatever that would be perceived as, uh, but getting on their level and speaking to them with compassion uh, could you talk a little bit about that, how you approach that person to to not run into the the feeling of of fight or flight or freeze? Yeah, I think that um, that a lot of behaviors are generated um, or perceived as the response that happens when there is resistance to care. And I say that in air quotes. Um, and that's where the family member is trying to get the person with dementia into the bathroom or get a shower, or help them brush their teeth or do something. Um, and it's that coming upon them and it's how you come upon them and you want to get this thing done. You need to get this task done. But if you come upon it the wrong way, then the person with dementia is going to perceive you as that threat and they're going to push back. They're going to start crying. They're going to get anxious, whatever. So the, the positive approach, um, and this is something that I learned from uh, Tipa Snow, um, the positive approach is where you, you know, approach from a distance, you focus on establishing a relationship and a connection before you try to do anything. And you'd really be like, oh, well, this is my husband. Of course we're connected. No, 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 no. Every time you want to get something done, you have to reestablish that connection. And it's only through that connection that you can communicate and successfully get something done. And and I th- and I've heard you say and I think that this is what you're saying now, it's it's the con- it's the overall relationship that matters. Maintain that connection and relationship even if the particular encounter doesn't seem to go all that well. Yeah, you got to walk away. If it's not going well, if there, if there is, is that resistance or if they're like, yeah, I'm not going with you today. I'm not going, I'm not going to do that. Nope. I don't feel like doing that. Then the, the way to handle it is not to get mad and fight because, um, honestly you can fight all you want. Um, but you're only going to succeed when you're tangoing and not tangling, uh, fighting's going to get you nowhere, and it's just going to make them pissed off. And one thing that happens is emotional memory lasts the rest of the day. So they may not remember what you did to them, but they'll remember that you pissed them off. So, Isn't that interesting? <laughs> so that they don't want to be with you. Um, so, yeah, so you need to make a connection. It needs to be, and if it's not going well, you just thank them and walk away and then sneakily reapproach a little bit later. 
Good advice. And as as we talk through these issues, is there one place that you send people uh, who want to find more information? They're, after they hear some of the things you've said, they might want to go research on their own. Yeah, I uh, send um, all of the families that I work with um, to the Alzheimer's Association website. It's incredibly rich and deep. You have to do some searching sometimes and you have to get over the ads for, um, you know, asking for donations. Just just work through that. Search for what you're looking for. And I promise you, you will find very rich information, in a ve- but in a very small bite-sized pieces um, very digestible information, even at it's not at a highfalutin, um, highly academic level. It's it's really in lay terms, and they have pictures. They have great examples. They have they have everything on that website. Good stuff. We'll be back from a break in a moment. You are listening to the Later in Life Planning Show on News Radio WHP five eighty. It's the Later in Life Planning Show here on News Radio WHP five eighty. Now your host. Patrick Colley. We are back on the Later in Life Planning Show. I'm Patrick Colley with Keystone Elder Law. Our guest today is Dr. Rollin Wright with Penn State Health. And Rollin, one of the things you've, you've shared so much information already, I think one thing that I probably haven't emphasized enough is how can people get in touch with you and how do you encounter families? When do you encounter families in the in the disease process? And what what does a meeting with you look like? That's so, a lot. So just run with it. Yeah. So, so I'm going to start by saying that um, that I think that the initial part has to be. I think primary care physicians and providers, nurse practitioners, PAs, have to have to make an effort to try to diagnose this disease early. I end up seeing people who are in the later stages of the disease. So there's seven stages. I I see people in stages five, six, and seven mostly. Very rarely do I see them earlier. Um, and not because you don't want to, but or you're not set up to. It's just they're it's not being caught because families and also providers don't recognize it. It's not obvious that there's something wrong until the middle stages, and that's when a person with dementia their compensatory strategies. Because they come up with all sorts of tricks to get through the day and hide their deficits, and a lot, and we can either be complicit and go right along with them, or we can say, you know, something's just a little off. Um, I think it's I think it's really important part of primary care, especially with the annual wellness visit, um, that cognitive assessment part. You know, that's a, there's a little there's a little cognitive function screen in that visit, and um, way too often I find that. The provider has either blown off, you know, an obvious deficit or has just decided that what they're seeing in front of them isn't really as bad as, you know, what the test might be showing. But that test is a is is pretty sensitive. And um, I think that as primary care providers, we need to be on it. We need to be screening for uh, for dementia or for cognitive impairment um, starting at age 65 on everyone every year. And if that's a little bit off, then you need to send the, either you need to do a deeper dive and primary care providers can do this, or you need to send them to a dementia care specialist, which would be either an, a cognitive disorders neurologist um, or someone like me, a geriatrician who, um, who kind of subspecializes in um, dementia and dementia care. And there's a special Medicare visit that's just geared for 
addressing identified cognitive impairment. And that's what I do. It's a very long and intensive visit. And it goes into a chronology of the decline, um, looking at risk factors, looking at functional decline, safety concerns, medications that people are on that might contribute to cognitive impairment. And there's a lot of them out there that we take all the time, I'll say. Um, And also assessing the support network, the care partners that the person with dementia has and will rely on until the end of the disease, until the end of their lives. Um, So this visit kind of looks at that and looks to help with planning in the future. Um, So a lot of what I do um, is help people understand what it is they're going through. Like a neurologist might, you know, order the MRI and maybe order a spinal tap or something like that. But really the diagnosis is mostly clinical, meaning like I do some cognitive function testing. I can get a sense from the history of which of the four families they're in. If I'm really struggling, then I kick it up to a neurologist to say, hey, can you help me out with this? But most of what I do is is problem solving for the day-to-day because dementia brings with it everyday challenges um, for the families that are living with dementia. And, um, and I just help people negotiate, identify what the problem, what the stress points are, and I come up, I work with them to help come up with solutions for that. And then just plan for the future um, decline that this person's going to go through. And this extensive examination, you said, is a Medicare visit. So money should not be the objection to having having Mm-mm. this. It's paid for. Yeah, it's 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 reimbursed by Medicare. Um, and I think anyone who who uh, um, any of the insurance plans that are um, Medicare intermediaries, um, they would they would cover it. And it it's done every 180 days. So I'll see people like every 180 days. Um, if I don't need to see them that often, then I'll see them every year. Um, and then I'll see them in between if there are issues that pop up, like behavior issues or some other challenge that might arise in, in between. I'm just fascinated by uh, the comment you made about the compensatory strategies that people come up with. And um, I've sort of seen this in, in family and, uh, you know, you just you write it off as one thing or or they're just acting different. Maybe they're in a, in a bad mood. But they are really, you know, it, and I think during COVID, this this happened a lot where uh, people were isolated. And, and by the time they sought a higher level of care, they're, they're, they just needed so much more care. So the people who were clinging to, I just want to stay in my home. Well, by the time, you know, there could have been some other level of care. It was they needed very expensive care and so forth. So I, I've sort of seen this but could never put it in those words. So I'm glad you brought that up. So, you know, one other concept I wanted to talk about with you is just, uh, again, getting back to once once they've met with you, once they have an understanding of the changes in the brain, you start to really highlight uh, what's going on in providing care or how to adjust to life with dementia. This concept of being the extended brain or mind for a person and, and you know, in materials you've written you know, you talk about how our, our minds are not just inside our heads or even inside the body. It's It extends into the external environment, and that's where uh, other people can be a source of support and care. Yeah, I think, um, and, and I have to give credit to Jason Carlowish. He's, um, he's kind of my true north when it comes to anything uh, dementia-related, dementia care, thinking about treatment, um, ethical issues, and so on and so forth. But he coined this concept of the extended brain, and the extended brain is really... 
um, the outside world, so the structure of the environment, a familiar environment. Uh, with dementia, later in the disease, the familiar becomes unfamiliar. The familiar is not familiar anymore. So routine and having you know, visual reminders, having this cognitive scaffolding in the environment around them is really important. And the people in their lives, the care partners, are part of that cognitive scaffolding. And when my brain, when I have dementia and I can't figure out how to brush my teeth or whatever it is, work the remote control, I need my extended, I need to rely on my extended brain. That's my helpers, my care partners to help me through that. And it's really important for the care partner to really not make it or let it escalate to a federal case because once I get escalated and all anxious about it, it's going to be really hard for me to calm back down. So the extended brain needs to slide in and support, kind of guide from the side without being overt and pointing out what's wrong with me. And I think that a lot of us fall into that trap of parenting the person with dementia and kind of pointing out where they're failing while we're helping them out. But the the best extended brain is just going to slide in, do what it needs to do, and move back out again and let that person keep going about their business. And just returning to the idea of where people can learn more, uh, I know you've spoken in seminars. You do a series of, of these uh, seminars around central Pennsylvania. What other resources would you recommend people check out as they start to find themselves on this journey? Yeah, I think that um, – so so a lot of people will go to um, a couple of different resources. Um, there's a bazillion books out there probably the standard that we all recommend when you're really struggling with being the care partner, the extended brain, because there's a lot of challenges in that. It's not just easy to do that. It takes a lot of practice, a lot of work, a lot of mistakes to get it down. But the 36-hour day kind of remains a staple. Um, so that's an important book. Um, if uh, reading about it is not your jam, there's a lot of stuff on um, on YouTube. There's just a lot of dementia education um, available on YouTube. Um, Alzheimer's Association is another resource. Then there's Age-Friendly PA. Um, so I'm part of this group based out of the Penn State uh, College of Nursing. Um, and, and we have this grant, this HRSA grant for a geriatric wor workforce enhancement. And it's all about trying to help uh, people living with dementia, including the people helping uh, understand the disease better. So we have a website, uh, Age-Friendly PA website, that has a lot of educational material. Um, but there's a, a, there's a Dementia Friends website. There's just a variety of, of resources out there. Um, and I try to connect people with those resources. And if you're looking for a physician, I really think that your PCP should be the first stop. And if they're just not comfortable with it, and a lot of people aren't, um, then finding a dementia care specialist. Um, it's not easy to do, but there's a couple of us around here. That's, this has been outstanding. This is Dr. Rollin Wright with Penn State Health uh, at the Hershey Medical Center. At Keystone Elder Law, of course, we, we have constant education. Go to keystoneelderlaw.com and click on one of our workshops tab to learn about the legal planning that you can be doing ahead of time to prepare for a, a decline in health like dementia. Thank you for listening. I hope you'll join me next week. And uh, you've been listening to the Later in Life Planning Show on News Radio WHP 580.